That's right. Wisdom. This is where wisdom arises. <laughs> Usually around the age of 17. <laughs> they cut their, cut their eye teeth on this one, didn't they? Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So recently my my daughter has had us watching the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. There's a lot of them. I don't get it. I don't, do you guys, are you guys into them? Don't you love seeing people being smashed through cement walls over and over? No, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to imply it's bad. I just mean like, I don't, I don't understand why people are so into it. I agree. I find it dull. You watch them? Uh, I have on occasion a few. It's, it gets really repetitive. Although I think some, sometimes the repartee is pretty funny. Thor, Thor Ragnarok was the one that I liked. I loved Thor Ragnarok. That was the one that I did like. But I, I liked the recent uh, Spider-Man where he's this sort of adenoidal, annoying, annoying teenager. Oh, what, when was that? It, it was the second but most recent. I don't know if I saw that one. But anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. And I'm here once again in the Godly Studio with Dr. Christopher Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hi. And... I am also joined by Dr. Don Thea, also from the Department of Global Health. Matt, Welcome. Chris. I'm just trying to keep it short. <laughs> so as a reminder, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning, where you can find all kinds of interesting population health learning tools. And as a reminder, if you go on over to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you get your podcast and give us a rating, it will help other people find the show. So let's get into the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we're going to look at a study on the impact of the use of Doppler ultrasound on reducing fetal mortality. And then the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about sharing technology and vaccine doses to address global vaccine inequity. Obviously, that one relates to COVID specifically. And then in our final segment, which is our amazing amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or just interested us. So let's dive right into segment one, where we are going to talk about a study on the use of Doppler ultrasound in reducing fetal mortality. So it was entitled, as you would expect, does the use of Doppler ultrasound reduce fetal mortality, a population study of all deliveries in Norway, 1990 to 2014 by first author Justine Gritten of the Department of Community Dentistry. Dentistry. Yeah, I didn't see that coming. No. I <laughs> didn't. I did, it's funny. I, I wrote it down and I didn't even comment it on the time. All right. So What's up with that? Did you see that what? is the most important question to ask you. Because if we're trying to be brief and you say, does the use of Doppler ultrasound reduce fetal mortality? Yes. And we could then go into wacky and weird. Yeah. But there you go. So this was from the University of Oslo in Norway, and it was published in the International Journal of Epidemiology. So this one was also was published ahead of print. So therefore, we don't have any headlines on this one. So Don, can you talk us through this one? Sure, Matt. So... So I, I think it's important to put this in the context of sort of what has happened during the course of when they did this study from 1990 to 2014. And I think people probably don't realize the enormous strides that have been made globally, both in developed as well as developing areas of the world, 
in terms of improvements in infant and neonatal mortality. I mean, it's a real public health triumph. Mm -hmm. And at at this point, further reductions in uh, salvaging children, either during the neonatal period or during the the infant period, need to really focus on the hours and days after delivery. And one of the questions that these authors asked is, among children who are born into high-risk pregnancies, does the institution of this new technology, which was new in the 1990s, which is called Doppler ultrasound, has it had an effect on improving neonatal mortality or, or, or infant death over the span of the period during which it was introduced? Mm-hmm. And it's important to know what Doppler ultrasound is. What Doppler ultrasound is, it's ultrasound. I think most people know what ultrasound is, bouncing sound waves through the body to get a, a, an image of various structures. But what Doppler ultrasound allows you to do is allows you to um, image moving tissue, whether it's your heart valves or whether it's blood in the placenta. And this Doppler ultrasound, which was introduced sequentially in Norway as well as other places, allowed the obstetrician to visualize the vasculature of the umbilical cord and the placenta and to identify those instances in high-risk pregnancies where there was an abnormality, Mm -hmm. which might risk the child later towards the end of the gestational period. And then the question is, well, what then? And typically, if there is an anomaly that is seriously risking the viability of the pregnancy, they can do a C-section and pull the child out early and then support the child out out of the uterus in the neonatal intensive care unit and have a much better outcome. So the question that these researchers asked with a incredible data set, which is, you know, what Norway and the Scandinavian countries have we so that, jealous of. that we're so jealous of is that they've basically got good data on every, and they say that in the title, a popular every. study of all deliveries and in were, Norway. Kidding. And they weren't kidding. So every single delivery from 1990 to 2014 went into this data set and they combined it with a data set of socio, you know, demographic factors. They put it all together and they had this, this monster data set. And they, they cited that there were a couple, there have been a number of um, randomized control trials to ask the question, does the introduction of Doppler ultrasound result in improved um, neonatal outcomes? And they were, they were numerous, but they were inconclusive because neonatal death in Norway is so infrequent that they really suffered from poor sample size. And then there were some... Which is a positive, of course. Which is a positive, right, except from an epidemiologist standpoint. Right. But then there were um, a series of Cochrane reviews and uh, meta-analyses of those randomized controlled trials. One showed that there was some improvement. Another showed that there was no really, really was no improvement because, again, there was not enough sample to be able to really come to a conclusion. So what these authors asked is, all right, let's take all of the health facilities, all the hospitals and OBGYN wards in the country, and they can do that. They can they could look at all of them, and they were able to collect all of the um, infant death information. Then they sent a questionnaire out to that senior registrar in the maternity wards of all these hospitals and said, okay, when did you first introduce ultrasound? And they were able to stratify it. It wasn't all hospitals at the same time, and it was sort of varying over, over various times. And they combined those data sets, and they were able to then ask the question, what is the temporal relationship with any kind of a decline in neonatal mortality and the introduction of the Doppler ultrasound? And I thought that they were, it was interesting the way they tried to control for 
secular trends. Because the, the Doppler ultrasound was not the only intervention that was introduced during this time. There were, of course, improvements in obstetrical care during this time. And it's hard to tease out what, what was it that really resulted in these decreases in, uh, in, in these trends. And so what they did was they sort of looked at temporal trends by hospital, and they, they were able to show that there was, in fact, a decrease in neonatal mortality. And they were able to show that there were trends before the introduction of Doppler that that really did not support a decrease in the neonatal mortality. And then they looked at, by hospital, the trend after the introduction of the Doppler ultrasound, and they showed that in certain cases, for certain kinds of pregnancies, there were changes. And they stratified their analysis by preterm deliveries, term deliveries, term deliveries and post-term deliveries. And they did a stratified analysis of of all of those. And they showed that, in fact, there was an effect of the, there was a relationship between the the introduction of Doppler ultrasound, but only restricted to the preterm deliveries, not the term and not the post-term deliveries. And then they went back and they asked the question, well, is there a correlation between the finding of the, this decrease in mortality and the introduction of the Doppler and the frequency of C-sections? And they showed essentially the same thing, that there was a correlation between in preterm deliveries between the introduction of the Doppler and then the subsequent C-sections, meaning that there probably was, and you're going to probably nail me on this, but there probably was or looked like there was a reasonably good argument to describe a chain of causality, that the uh, Doppler allowed them to see an abnormality, allowed them to intervene early and do a C-section and salvage that child through supportive care, even though it was a, a premature delivery. So I thought that, that it was a it was a, a pretty nifty study yeah. that that did a good job of controlling for secular trends and added another analysis that allowed us to sort of at least think that there is this chain of causality through the use of C-sections. Yeah. I I, I will say I also I, I thought it was a, a pretty nice study. I, I have some you know, some minor things that, that came to mind. But overall, I did think it was a pretty good study. Chris, what about you? Uh, I felt as Don did. And it, of course, it mechanistically, it kind of makes sense because the Doppler ultrasound by itself doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. It, right. only, it only matters if you have an intervention to follow. And, and with, you know, complicated deliveries, the, the C-section is the, is the sort of the universal answer to that. And it also made sense that, it, you know, it only would really help in preterm deliveries because, you know, you sort of think about it. In, in a way, it's a little bit of a circular thing right. because the reason they're preterm is that something is going wrong. And one of the things that could be going wrong is placental insufficiency. And if you could, if you could identify that, then you could intervene early on and, and get the child out and, you know, Know, and make sure that it's getting oxygenated and, and getting nutrients in a NICU as opposed to in utero. So I, I thought that this, uh, I, I actually couldn't really come up with much, you know, many arguments to sort of poke holes at this. I was pretty much persuaded and it all just felt like, well, yes, this this seems like it all lines up. I, I would, I tend to buy it, but, yeah. you know, I, I found it hard to be skeptical on this one. So that's really interesting to me because I, I, I'm the same. I mean, I, I was surprised by how, you know, I sort of went through the usual checklist. Okay, so am I worried about, you know, confounding here? Well, you know, there's potentially some confounding, but but it's sort of a before after. So, and you're comparing within, you know, within the hospital. So things are probably not changing too much in the before after period. Could they get the the date of the introduction of, of the Doppler wrong? Yeah, possibly. But I'm guessing there's records on this that they probably went back to. And I'm guessing that they's probably reasonably well-timed. 
you know, how well are they measuring these outcomes? Well, their data is really good. So I suspect that they're, you know, it's not perfect, but they're, they're doing a really good job here. So then the only other things that occurred to me were, you know, as you point out, Don, they, they, they had to deal with this problem of secular trends that, that as they specifically say, the reason they did this study in the first place was because there was this trend of decline in, in, in deaths and they want to try to understand that, but then, and they know that this was not the only intervention. So, you know, you have this pattern that is not going to be completely explained by one thing. How do you tease out that one thing? And so you have to be really careful when you do that. And I do suspect that they didn't fully tease out the, the you know, separate out the, the Doppler from everything else, everything else. but I, I'm fairly convinced they did a, a pretty good job. The one thing I questioned, and, I, and I'm pretty sure I ultimately came down on the side of no, but I wondered something that I don't think we've talked much about on this, this program before, which is harking. Have you, harking, mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. you came across harking? It's, it's what the um, Herald Angels sing about. Hark the Herald? <laughs> no. Uh, harking is the, it stands for <laughs> hypothesizing after the results are known. Oh, that yeah. too. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so it's this is the idea that you, you already know what the data says. And then, so then you come up with a hypothesis that explains it because you already know it does. You mean the C-section in this case? Yeah. And then you say, you know, and I don't, I don't think people necessarily do this, like to be malicious, you just sort of convince yourself that that's what we always thought. And so we had this hypothesis, we tested it, and it worked out. And the reason you would care about that is if you have the hypothesis and then you tested it and it works out, that's better evidence because you had reason to believe it, and then you went out and checked it and it worked out. Whereas if you already have the data and then you just come up with a story to explain it. Mm-hmm. That's uh, a little dodgier. You, you, you run the risk of just coming up with a story that explains it. But I... I don't think that's what they did. Though. I don't think so either, because I got the sense here that they actually had. I, I wrote down that I thought maybe this was actually pre-registered. I'm not sure if I'm right about that or not, mm. but I definitely got the sense that this was this was a a planned analysis that they did. I, I thought the language could have been a little tighter around that to make it clear. And to be honest with you, even if they did, it would only change me from sort of the hypothesis of, you know. We, we see a clear pattern. We don't have rock solid evidence as to why to a case where I think we, we probably do have pretty good evidence as to why. So even even if it is what happened, I'm, I'm not so convinced it it matters all that much. So overall, yeah, I, I came away from this one pretty impressed. Yeah. I wish we had data sets like this in the U.S. Yeah, that would be great. The one thing that, that I had a little bit of trouble sort of figuring out, maybe you guys can help me think this through, was that when they did the analysis, they're stratifying it by preterm, term, and post-term. And they're saying that the association was found to the greatest extent in the preterm. But the intervention made a term pregnancy preterm. Mm. Good point, because they C-section. Yeah, there is a little circularity there, isn't there? Yeah, so I didn't quite understand why they stressed so much that this was a phenomenon that was seen so so, so much more in the preterm children when they're stacking the deck for the preterm. Yeah, that's a good point, because of course, (laughs) if if you're term, you're unlikely to have placental insufficiency. That's why you're term. Or if you did, it was insignificant. Right. It didn't matter. It didn't matter, because you were delivering (laughs) anyway. Because you're term. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. point. I mean, you do wonder if, <laughs> if when you stratify that way, you run into sort of the the immortal person time bias. Whereas by being by being term, by definition, you have to have survived long right. enough to have been term. I thought now, you were referring to me. 
<laughs> what? With the immortal person bias. And I, I think I'm equanimical. I have no idea what's happening. Me neither. No. What does that mean? Well, I'm an immortal. You are? I believe so. Okay. I think, no, I think you're a mere mortal. I think you are a, a, a fully mere mortal. I doubt it. One other question. So the only other thing that, that, that popped into my head when I was reading this was I always, you know, in studies like this where you've got a, you're dealing with sort of like time trend, I always want to see uh, some kind of a, a negative control, you know, something where you use the, the Doppler ultrasound and you have an outcome that you're pretty convinced should in no way be affected by Doppler ultrasound and you see no- Like neonatal sepsis. Benefit. Like maybe neo, mm. I don't know. I, I don't mm. know. And 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 I I was trying to understand. So they said there was no effect on fetal death or cesarean section for term deliveries. The neonatal death part is that potentially something that would be unaffected by the C, the the do, use of Doppler anyway. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I was just looking for I mean, something like that. Neonatal death is strongly associated with preterm delivery. Okay, so so that could be affected by. So that's not a, a great option. I don't know. I'm struggling to wrap my hand on it because I think there's some funky circularities in that one as well. Yeah, fair enough. I think we need an OB person. Mm, yeah. yeah. Or someone who pretends to be on TV. But, but I, you know, it would have been nice to see something where you, you, you have no reason to believe that the Doppler is going to have any impact on. And then you do the, do the analysis and you see that. That would be helpful in terms of me being convinced that they were able to sort out the secular trends. So you're saying look for that association that you expect to be negative, and when you find it to be negative, that would help you to to, to accept the Or the if it's basic. not negative, to the, the extent to which it is not negative, and by negative here we mean, I suppose, null, yeah. uh, to the extent to which it's not null, that might give you some insight into how much bias could have resulted in their main mm-hmm. analysis because they were not completely Got able it. to sort out the time trend. But... You know, so so I suppose that would have been a nice thing. Now they did do these placebo tests, which they talked about, which is sort of a, in some ways another way of getting at that. Yeah, I, I skipped over that whole section of the methodology because I really didn't understand those those those. I read it thoroughly and I didn't understand it either. I, was just I have to admit, confusing. it's not something that I have spent a lot of time on, and I have always kind of struggled with. But I think essentially the idea is we know when the intervention occurred, and so we expect that there would be an effect at that time point if the intervention does anything. We can then, we could, we could also just randomly assign a time period mm. at which the intervention occurred. And our hypothesis is then if we're randomly assigning, we're making up the time at which the intervention occurred, there should be no effect of the intervention on those time points. Mm. And that would provide you, again, some evidence that the time trend is is not overly influencing so your like, results. Like if, if, if uh, you know, the switch to Doppler ultrasound could have happened anytime between 1990 and 2000, mm-hmm. and it actually occurred in 1997 at this given hospital, but let's pretend it happened in 1994, even though it didn't. We would not expect to see an improvement on mortality in 1995. Exactly. Right? Because it didn't actually happen then. Exactly. Is that... Is that okay. You've got it. Mm. That is my understanding. But if there are others... Out there, and our listeners who who understand placebo tests better, I would love to love to hear from them. But it's you know, it's a, I think it's just another one of these trying to be thoughtful about the ways in which you use your data to try and figure out what's going on. 
were either of you struck by the way they presented their results, which to me felt very mathematical and not very clinical? Well, they were rely very heavily on coefficients. On coefficients, they talk about coefficients, yeah, but they very, don't. It's not they very don't user friendly. Size. It, it was a different term, you know, te- taxonomy, I guess, uh, terminology that than from what I'm used to seeing in clinical articles. I I would agree with you. There's a lot of there's a lot of p values in here, as you know, which are are not my favorites. I think, um, I think it's heavily used in the dental literature. <laughs> I, I actually think you're, I, I think you're actually right. I actually don't think that's a, um, Ms. Dober. I, 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 I've worked with a I'm few folks in the dental school. I'm wondering why they didn't publish this in the, the Norwegian Journal of Dentistry and Obstetrics. No, but uh, now, now, now I got to wonder, what do you think is it for? <laughs> it is just so odd. You, you, do, no, you have to wonder, like, I, I wondered whether when you said it, you know, is this somebody who's just really an epidemiologist and happens to be working in the dental school because that's where they can get an appointment? They yeah, do some sure. dental work, but they're also, you know, or is there something we just we don't know? I don't know. It, it's a, it's an interesting one. Okay, there's a backstory here. Last, any last last thoughts on this one? Backmuller story. Back yeah, that's right. Wisdom. This is where wisdom arises. <laughs> Usually around the age of seventeen. <laughs> They cut their cut their eye teeth on this one, didn't they? Keep going, keep going. I, my apologies to all of our friends in dental and Norway. epidemiology. You just offended all Norwegians. I give a I give Especially a talk. Norwegian dentists <laughs> slash epidemiologists. I gave a talk at a, a, a dental epidemiology conference this year. So Did you really? Yes. On what? Simulation methods. Huh? <laughs> really? Yeah. Like I'm going to pretend to bite you, but not actually bite you. No, but there's an interesting study. There why, don't we, why don't we set that one up? Uh-huh. I'm gonna, bites. Chris, do you want to enroll in that study? Sure. Uh-huh. Entitle you to a free so cr- crown or something? No. <laughs> what I really want to understand is what is up with Lutefisk? What? Lutefisk. What's Lutefisk? It's like this pickled herring thing. Oh, I love pickled herring. I love pickled herring, but Lutefisk is not exactly pickled herring. It's some, I think it's something... Is it more like gefilte fish? I don't really know. Don, you like gefilte fish? I love gefilte fish. You do? I don't get oh, that. I love it. I love it. I Absolutely. do not. I do With not. the red horseradish. Mm. Not okay. The, not the white. All right. I don't get it. Is it filtered? Is that why they call it gefilte? It's the fish that hangs out by the filter. Uh, the filte fish. The, the filter fish. Yeah. All right. Moving on. It's the one that gets stuck in the filter in your aquarium. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. Come on. Come on. Let's All go. Right. So let's move on to segment two. And we're going to talk about an article, or at least we're going to jump off from an article that was talking about sharing technology for, for, for vaccines in relation to the COVID-19 pandemic. So the, the article, was a, it was a short two-page piece in JAMA by Kavanaugh, Ghostin, and Sunder from Georgetown University Law Center entitled Sharing Technology and Vaccine Doses to Address Global Vaccine Inequity to End the COVID Pandemic. And, and you know, there was the first half of this is, is nothing surprising. It's just basically, you know, sort of describing the inequity in, in vaccine distribution that we, we know about, that most of the vaccines that have been rolled out to date have been in high-income countries. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a massive need to extend the distribution of vaccines. And so they, they talk about three different strategies for extending access to vaccines. So they say one thing is an intellectual property waiver. So 
anyone to be able to make these vaccines who has the capability, uh, sharing technology and expanding manufacturing capacity. So they talk about, you know, even if you allow others to make the vaccines, you, you still need support in that. So we need, you know, the ability to share the technology in, in how to increase manufacturing. And then finally, reallocating procured and ordered doses. So going, you know, taking the doses that we have here in the United States that are currently going unused and being able to reallocate those to countries that are most in need. None of that strikes me as particularly, at least in my view, particularly controversial. I guess my question is, why are we here in the United States having these long discussions and FDA and and CDC conversations about booster shots here in the United States at the same time as Mm. we still can't get first doses to people in, you know, a a large swath of the world. Mm, I mean, is this, I mean, I can understand why we're discussing it for the immunocompromised and those over pick your age. I don't know what, but in general, I mean, are we having the wrong conversations? Yeah, I think we absolutely are. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's reprehensible that we are considering revaccinating 170 million people because there is a very, very small marginal improvement in hospitalization or death in, in comparison to what's going on in the developing world. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, that is the real risk to everybody is that the developing world smolders on and we develop more variants and they're going to come back and we're going to go back all absolutely to square one. I think it's it's hopefully something that is is we're making progress on. And my sense is that we are making progress with the national dialogue today on September. 20, what is it? 22nd, 23rd, mm-hmm. something like that. You know, there was just the U.N. meeting and there were some announcements. And I think people are stepping up. And I think that there's a lot of momentum and, 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 and public underscoring of this particular issue. What I found interesting in this article, and I think is something that we need to include in our conception of where do we go from here in terms of pandemic preparedness globally. And there's a lot of talk about how do we, how do we identify new threats early on mm-hmm. and jump on them as quickly as possible. I think that there's less discussion about how do we prepare globally to act in defense of those new threats. And I think that one of the things that these new mRNA vaccines provide for us is a pathway forward where the technology, while complex, is has a number of distinct advantages in terms of its, its, its simplicity and its speed of generation. And we will improve the packaging, which I think is the complex part, the lipid bubbles in, in which these mRNA strands are, are, are placed. And I think that, that it will soon become quite simple to manufacture and scale up vaccines that are mRNA. And we need to establish a global network that is largely capacitated in the South, in the global South, in South Africa, in Senegal, in Thailand, in all of these places, to have the capacity to do what the Serum Institute in India does. And, you know, we were, we were caught flat-footed because Serum Institute in India is the only place that is really devoted to generating vaccines on a large scale and distributing them to the developing world. We just need to really focus on improving that capacity tenfold, hundredfold, so that the next time the next variant happens or the next coronavirus emerges, we can flip a switch and within a month or two, we can be generating hundreds of millions of vaccines. And the technology is permissive at this point. I yeah. think we really can do that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. And, and I, I'm going to 
emphasize the point which you made, which is that one of the, the, the amazing things about these mRNA vaccines is that the, the manufacturing process is universal. So like if you use like the MMR or the pneumococcal vaccine as oh, being different. like a, a comparison, like the, yeah, the, 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 the manufacturing pathway is completely distinct and every vaccine is, is its own separate challenge to manufacture. But with the mRNA, the, the, the platform is universal. The only thing that changes is the strings of oligos that you put right. you pack inside the lipids right. and you can generate that in, you know, relatively quickly. And, and so I, I think it really is a game changer. I, I totally agree with you. And I think the other thing is that we're going to soon find that we can, we can change that string of oligos, not only to provide immunity against the next strain of coronavirus, but it will potentially all sorts of stuff, in, including cancer. You know, so we will be able to generate vaccines against cancer that can be distributed very rapidly and very widely and hopefully very cheaply so that we could get rid of, of hepatic cancer or cervical cancer or, or whatever by just using the same technology. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a brave new world. It is. It's exciting. Uh, so let me just probe that a little further. So, so then what would the remaining bottleneck be? Because if you then have these centers that can can pump out massive amounts of mRNA vaccines and all you have to do is, you know, this new coronavirus or whatever it is, influenza, you know, shows up, you just figure out, you sequence it, you, you know, you figure out what to put in the vaccine. You still have to test it, right? Presumably or no? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You still have oh, to do sure. the clinical trials. <laughs> I, I just want to make it's sure. Not a, it's not, it's not, not guaranteed that, that the vaccine would work just because it came from an mRNA platform. Okay, you're... I was, I have to admit, I was thinking about safety more than I was thinking about, I, I guess my question is, do we, we don't know at this point that the, the technology is safe. We just know that the current vaccine is safe. In other words, if we produced an mRNA vaccine for influenza, we don't know that it would work, but we also don't know that it would necessarily be safe or do we? I well, mean, that, that's the part I'm, I mean, you know, you I mean, take- or can we assume that if this one is, is Safe, you know, and by safe, you know, I mean, I mean I relatively safe. Te- technically, any mRNA vaccine would be safe. Technically, you know, we always want to be on the side of of letting the data tell us what is safe and what is not safe. But but in practice, right? I mean, if you think about what is going on in all of our hundred million, hundred trillion cells right now, like what you know, every single cell in our body is currently manufacturing strands of messenger RNA billions of different kinds of mRNA. And so the probability that we're going to come up with a strand of mRNA that is toxic is so remote, mm. right? Because it's happening all day long. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I, I totally agree Whereas with that. Whereas the reactogenicity is, is largely a function of the lipids that they're packaged in. Yeah, but, but you know, the, the protein that the mRNA produces as a result... That's a question. Is, ...is something that we'll always need to test yeah. for safety. So I, I don't think... Think that we're going to be able to telescope this process down where we get rid of the clinical trials. Maybe we can improve the time it takes to get to the 40,000 individuals in a clinical trial because we have factories all over the world cranking this out and we can do a 50 right. multi-site center study and, and get it done in two months instead of getting it done in six months or nine months, which was an incredibly fast time anyway. But we're always going to need to test it for safety because, you know, there could be autoantibodies that could yeah, attack right. the brain or you know, right. there's all sorts of possibilities. So Who knows? I don't think there's ever going to be a, a, a replacement for that. Yes. But the beauty is that you can create the manual manufacturing capacity
university like as a universal platform and you can build that in advance. And so right. if it turns out that you know Pfizer develops a new mRNA vaccine against disease X and it seems to be safe and effective, you can now manufacture that across the network of mRNA factories around the world using the same technology and platform. You wouldn't have to change that substantially. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like so with, quick. within a month of isolation of the virus, the Chinese had published the sequence of the spike protein. And as soon as that was known, you could dial into your mRNA generation machine. Mm-hmm. That On sequence, they did it in like two weeks or something like that. And, and that's the point at which all of those laboratories in all of those areas could do the same thing and simultaneously, you know, because the packaging, as you said, is generic. And as long as the packaging is generic, it's just the thing on the inside that changes. And, you know, that's that it could be done incredibly fast. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, the potential of this is just, uh, I think it's, it's, it's barely we're even understanding the implications of what's, what's yeah. about to happen. And so and presumably that's going to change a lot. I guess my, my other question would be when it came to the, you know, the, the spike protein that they were generating this mRNA for, could they have chosen other, I mean, is it, is it, is it immediately obvious once you have the sequence what to do next, or no. are there choices? Yeah, in which choices. case, did we just get lucky? No, we, we we knew enough about coronaviruses to know that this was the point, the, the ligand that attaches the receptor that allows the virus to go in. The nifty thing about it was that there was a whole bunch of work that was done before because there's two or more configurations of that spike. And you had to make sure that you generated a protein of the spike that was in the right configuration. And if it's in the wrong configuration, it will be completely ineffectual. So there's a little bit of science that needs to be done ahead Which of time. they had done. They had done, yeah. But it was like two proline substitutions yeah. that made that spike protein stay in the right shape to be able to actually generate the proper antibodies that were going to go after it. So I guess what I'm saying here is I went from your original comments feeling like, well, you know, in the future, we're going to assuming we actually, you know, do something, we're going to set up this big network where we have it all ready to go. And then, you know, the next pandemic hits and, you know, three months later, we're vaccinating people and we're done. That's not going to happen because there's, there's, there's still trial and there's still, there may still be some science. I mean, it sounds yeah. like we were a little bit ahead of the game but, on this one, that we might not be quite as ahead of the game. But where we're stuck on the right now is, is, is because we're not delivering doses to Africa right. because we've done the science, we've done the clinical trials, right. but what we haven't solved is the logistics and the supply chain and the, and and the distribution yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, that that is, of course, critically important. And having that in Africa right. would be a game changer. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, like uh, two weeks after the FDA approves the, the Pfizer vaccine, South Africa could start cranking this stuff out. Yeah. And a month later, they have 100 million doses instead of waiting for Canada to suck up all the doses and France to suck up all the doses in the U.S. It puts yeah. them at the head of the queue. Yeah. All right, last thing I want to know, I still don't understand why is Moderna, I'll say Moderna because I don't know the specifics around the Pfizer, but why is Moderna not sharing this technology Completely. I mean, why is it not, given that the funding to develop this was U.S. government funding, it was our tax dollars, why does that not come with the stipulation that this has to be? That's a game that we need to really relook at that because that is true of so many therapeutics Mm -hmm. that go through the pharmaceutical pipeline. You know, a lot of the HIV drugs were generated with NIH, initially found with NIH funding. And Chris, you know more about this than I do, but there's a lot of, a, a lot of, product that generates tremendous profit through the pharmaceutical companies where the where the basic science was done at the NIH and you know that's just it's just wrong mm-hmm. I, I, yeah and I, I you know 
in my ideal world, if you got NIH funding, it would therefore immediately become public, you know, public good and open access. But but it, uh, we're in the real world, so I get that that's not going to happen. But I mean, this is a very different situation. I mean, this is a well, I suppose kind of an emergency. emergency situation too. But but a lot of these drugs come out after there's already other drugs available. Here, there's one and only. Well, there's a few options, but it's all the same technology. Well, Pfizer and Moderna are the same technology. I just feel like that that doesn't sit well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. fun fact is Andon. The, the name of the company, Moderna, is actually a play on words. Mode RNA. I did not know that. Mode? Mode? RNA. As in, like, this is how the vaccine works is through RNA. Cool. Mode RNA. <laughs> cool. All I, right. I, I, I initially thought it was just like some, some kooky made up Italian sounding word. Something European. Like, but no. Like Theranos? Like, yeah. Like the Greek god of destruction. Isn't that what Theranos, who Theranos was? No, Theranos is Well, the... that's come home to roost, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like, no, just as served. <laughs> no, Theranos, Theranos was the... Wasn't it the blood company that... Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 but the word that's Theranos is, ref- is, is, is taken by a, a Greek god of, of like, no, war and destruction. It's not. No? No, no, I'm pretty sure Theranos comes from therapy and diagnosis. Yeah, 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 but it, 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 it's also a cognate for it's, that. It's meant to Hold sound on. like where's, a... Where's my cell phone? Here it is. is meant to sound like a, a Greek this. god, but this it is, is very important. that's not where it comes from. All right, let's move on to our, our final segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing. Don, you got... Yeah, I, 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 I have actually two, but I can just do one. All right. All right. So you, I, you can do two for a reason that I'll explain <laughs> in a minute if you want. All right. So I have a paper that was published in the journal. This has got to be, I have to get a subscription to this journal. The Journal of Applied Volcanology. Ooh. What, uh, you're going to have to give not me more. Volcanology. Not Volcanology. This vol- is not about Spock. Oh, okay. This is not. Volcanology. Vol- volcanoes. 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 Not, not yeah. Vulcans. Got, yeah. got it. So it's entitled Volcanic Fatalities Database, Analysis of Volcanic Threat with Distance and Victim Classification by Brown, Jenkins, Sparks, and Odbert, um, the Journal of Volcanology. And it is an absolutely fascinating repository where they have gone through all of the available literature and they have characterized every death that resulted from the eruption of a volcano or gases emitted from a dormant volcano since 1500 AD. They have 278,360 Eight volcano-associated fatalities. That's amazing. It's a lot. So what they do is they categorize these by cause of death, because mm. there are several subsets in terms of the cause of death. I could so imagine, there are yep. pyroclastic density currents. So the, these are pyroclastic flows. So it's a burp from the volcano of superheated air, and it cascades down the mountain and just wipes out a whole swath of people. Tsunamis. Lahars, which are volcanic are mud flows, tephra, which are which is volcanic ash, ballistics, things hit shooting by things, out, things they, shooting heavy, out things, of heavy rocks that get shot out, avalanches, lava flows, and then gas, which is also comprised of quiescent gas, which is gas that's emitted from a dormant volcano, but it's still toxic gas. Oh, okay, yep. As well as lightning. That Wait, it, what? Lightning induced by a volcanic eruption. Because of all the, the, the collision of dust particles creating... 
static electricity. Uh, yes. This is, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait. Volcanoes create lightning? They do. When they, the big gas clouds and you know, ash clouds go up, all those little tiny bits of, of lava are going bing, 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 and it's like a giant like rubbing Next. rubbing of a, me, of a plastic rod, and you get static electricity and kapow. In the same way that sharks cause tornadoes? Do they? Yeah. <laughs> Sharknadoes. Yeah. Well, so, I suspect so they, have a whole, they, 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 they present a whole bunch of really interesting data that's too long to go into. But there's a couple of tables, one of which is seven largest incidents in terms of loss of life. So in 1883, Krakatoa killed 36,000 people. Wow. Ouch. Wow. It was Jeez. From a tsunami. Uh, Martinique in 1902 killed 28,000 people because of pyroclastic burps that came off the volcano and they they apparently were distributed evenly and Martinique is essentially a, a round it's a tiny little island with a volcano in the middle the the cause of death that is the greatest are these pyroclastic flows and the total number of deaths since the 1500s is about 60,000 individuals Oy. and tsunamis have killed about 56,000 they have a, a table of the number of deaths Due to quiescent volcanic gas emissions. So that gas is being emitted from so a dormant volcano. So you're you're like you're just hiking. Yeah. So you hike into was, a gully and there's a lot of methane and carbon dioxide leaking right, out and met, you suffocate. Right, or carbon monoxide. So in uh, Cameroon in 1986, there was a quiescent gas emission which killed 1,500 and 65 villagers. Jeez. I'm going to stay away from volcanoes. Volcanoes That's for are sure. bad. Yeah. Nick is Nick oh, wow. is showing us that. a picture of go. a a volcano with lightning. Volcano with lightning. I've never seen this before. That is so cool. Uh, so shocking as well. Yeah. Have you been to Pompeii, either of you? No. No. Uh, if you ever go to Italy, I'd love you're to. near Naples, Herculaneum, you should go right? to go to uh, Pompeii. Yeah. And and the excavation of the of the ancient Roman city. It's just it's just See, fascinating. That must have been a pyroclastic flow. I think it because was because the people were frozen and or not frozen, but they were and then they were. Ki- Basically buried in the in the ash, right, and then dug up, you know, a hundred years ago, and right. they're still in those poses. In position, yeah, in position. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. Wow, Chris, what about you? Okay, so against Don's best advice, I'm going to talk about collider bias, which oh. uh, he does not want to hear about. But, uh, but uh, I love collider bias. Do you? I do. Okay, well, you'll be able to explain it better than I can. But collider- I was just teaching about this about. Okay, 20 so, minutes before we started. Were you really? Yeah. We, we did this, this study looking at people who had died with and without COVID. And we also collected risk factors like if they had diabetes or hypertension or the like. And we were going to do as like a classic, you know, odds ratio on this. And until it was pointed out that the analysis was, was hopelessly vulnerable to collider bias because all of the individuals had died. And when we talk about collider bias, we talk about is there some factor that, that unites these different groups that is a confounder. And in this case, mm-hmm. the confounder is that everybody in this population had died. So normally you would have like people who died with and without COVID and people who didn't die with and without COVID or with, you know, and then you would look at it in that way. But here everybody's dead. And so the traditional odds ratio is like the assumptions behind it are, are kind of like gone, gone screwy on you. And I was trying to sort of understand this mathematically. And I went on Wikipedia and Wikipedia had the whole series of equations. And immediately I was like, I was lost at sea. This was a disaster. I was not going to learn anything about collider bias from these equations. But what I, what they did do is include a nice little visual, which, which I actually found to be very intuitive. And I'll try to describe that and I'll keep it short, which is like, let's imagine that So the, the basic effect of collider bias is that it, it, it takes a, a true relationship and either nullifies it or potentially reverses its direction. So like, let's imagine that we're talking about who gets hired at BU. 
right? And there are many reasons, but let's say the two main reasons people get hired at BU is because they're great researchers or they're great teachers, mm -hmm. okay? And so you would imagine that there are four quadrants on this relationship. Good teacher, bad teacher, good researcher, bad researcher, right? And they, they form these four quadrants. And if you have a scatter plot, you would probably see if the data were true and complete and representative that there would be an upward trend that the people who are most likely to be hired are those who are good teachers and good researchers, okay? But there's a problem here, which is that people who are bad at teaching and bad at research do not get hired at BU. You can't be neither. And so if you have those four quadrants of spots that are supposed to form a, a, like a line for a correlation association, but you're missing that quadrant, which is bad at both, the line will look like this instead of like this. If you had all four quadrants and you were regressing that line across the, the, the spots that represent bad at teaching, bad at research, you would see an upwards trend oh. showing that if you're, you're more likely to be hired if you're good at research and good at teaching. But people who have actually been hired by BU cannot be bad at both or they would have not been hired. It's very, 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 very so unlikely. So instead of up and to the right, it's up and to the left? So instead it tends to tilt down, down because you're missing that whole quadrant yeah. of neither. And, and to me, that felt like that was the epiphany. It's like, now I get it. And, it. and it's like the same analogy to like fast food restaurants that sell hamburgers and french fries. And the hamburgers can be good or bad and the french fries can be good or bad. But no fast food restaurant is going to make it if they're bad at french fries and bad at hamburgers. And so you get an inverse relationship on the, on the goodness of like good hamburgers equals bad will we'll tilt down yeah. with bad french fries. It'll seem to be a negative association. And that's because the, the quadrant C if we're counting across and down, is missing, and that's the collider. Mm -hmm. Is that basically right, Matt? Yeah, I, the only thing I would correct is you said it's confounding. It isn't, it isn't confounding. Confounding is when you have two variables that have a common cause. Uh, collider bias is two variables have a common effect. They both affect something else, and you stratify or you adjust for that third variable. So in this case, you're stratifying on got hired by BU. You're only looking at those people who got hired. So the, 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 the example that I used when I was teaching, and this isn't mine, this comes from somebody else, is if you look at college admissions, if college admissions are largely based on GRE scores, if you go to school, you know, colleges or universities where the, the average GRE score for admitted students is high, Let's say there's there's no correlation in the population between being good in on the math GRE and the verbal GRE. Let's say they're just sort of evenly distributed. But in order to get into you have to be good at least one. You of have them. to be good at least one. So if you only look at those who got in to the university, that's the collision. People who are good at math tend to be not as good at English and vice versa. Because while you could be good at both, it's harder to be it's good at both. Harder to be good at both. So. Knowing that you're good at one means you're less likely to be good at the other, even though in the population, maybe there is no correlation. And right. so you create this spurious correlation. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and mm -hmm. it, tends to, it tends to be the inverse of what, what logically you would think. And, and in our own data set, when we, when we ran this analysis, our, our research fellow was apoplectic because she was reporting that, that smoking seems to be protective against COVID, as does cancer. This and you're is... like, wait a minute, that can't possibly be true. But, it, but suddenly you realize, like, this is what collider bias does, is it takes out that third quadrant of people who had neither smoking nor coronavirus, and therefore you're, you're sort of, a, you're 
not eliminating it completely because you could have neither, but you're diluting that that third mm-hmm. cell. Mm-hmm. So it's the perfect example because that is that is a real example that did happen. There was there was these early predictive models that were done on on COVID that found smoking was protective, and it's it seems to be very clearly a case of of collider bias because smoking should not Cannot be possibly protective. be good for you. Yeah, exactly. Nope. Uh, well, that's yeah. a, anyway. So I. I I'm glad you brought that one up because that means we can talk about collider bias from now on on this, That's on this right. program. Because I kind of get it now. All right. But it took me a long time to like wrap my head around this. And it wasn't until I, I had a nice little picture that I'm like, oh, I see to get it. The line obviously goes down because you're missing that piece of that quadrant that yep. would make the line go up. Yep. All right. Well, I do not have an amazing and amusing, but I do have a, a reason as to why that I want to tell you, Oh, which is that I had an article that I had planned to bring in for my amazing and amusing. And I had an hour between the time at which I was teaching and we were coming here to record and I was going to read it oh. during that time. However, rookie remove. I forgot one <laughs> thing, which is that at the very beginning of the pandemic, I went to the eye doctor and they said, you know, you're like on the cusp of needing reading glasses. And I said, well, I can read just fine at the moment. So I'm going to put that off for another year, which is, it was a perfectly fine idea until about, I don't need a root canal. That uh, pain is going to go away next week. Until about four (laughs) months later when my eyes, they're fine in general, but for reading, I cannot, I can no longer read anything. Yeah. So I bought, but as you know, I wear glasses. Mm -hmm. So I bought a pair of reading glasses, but you can't, you know, when you wear prescription lenses, then you have to put the reading glasses over the prescription lenses, yeah. or you have to buy bifocals. Bifocals, bifocals, right? or those those but uh, I can't progressive just pick lenses. Those up, right? I have to go do the. Well, I, I, I couldn't get an appointment until October. So anyway, I'd forgotten. And the other thing is, with computers, you can get away with it because you can make the print on everything really big. So I had forgotten that I cannot read a <laughs> printed out article. Welcome, Welcome to, to the middle cloud. age, man. <laughs> so, Praise Beopia. So yep. in, in late October, I will be back to reading printed out articles, but for the moment, I'm out of the club. So anyway... Well, that, that is an amazing and amusing story. That is, yeah. More amusing than amazing. You should also, like, uh, my... It's actually amusing and my, quite Amusing common. and predictable. My, my, <laughs> my kids laugh at me when I put the reading glasses on over the regular glasses, so I, I don't do that in public. Yeah, that's what I do with my sunglasses. Yeah. I put my reading glasses over my sunglasses <laughs> and reading outside. Wait, I get put, some odd looks. Do you put the reading glasses over the regular glasses and then the sunglasses over the reading glasses? No, I don't, you don't wear triple? regular No, I just have reading glasses. Oh, so, okay. so I wear sunglasses and I oh, put the reading it. glasses over it and it looks very, <laughs> it looks really weird. They show up your eyes. <laughs> All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other topic, or you got uh, How is uh, Leslie Salali in these days? What? How is she? Uh, Nick, how is Leslie? She's yeah, great. I, we're getting the thumbs up. Hey, hey, Leslie, we miss you. So if you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthTheX, or you can tweet me at at PropMattFox, or Don at at DTheo1, or Chris at ID.Gill, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealththeX.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian. There we go. Thanks, Leslie. Assistant Dean for Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound editing and finding lightning lightning photos from volcanoes at the drop of a hat. We want to thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode. 